Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back to the Master Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thank you so much for joining me here today. My guest today is none other than famed metal producer Frederick Nordstrom, and he has worked with a ton of amazing metal bands. He's worked with bands like At The Gates, Arch Enemy, In Flames, Opeth, and a whole bunch more. He is really well known for specifically working on melodic death metal and power metal, and He's just been pumping out amazing artists from his studio in Sweden, and uh, really a big honor to have him on here as well. So in today's episode, we get into a lot of great discussion about working in heavier genres, working with tempos that are faster. We'll talk about the famed Fredman technique, and that is an amazing way to track your guitars and get really clean, fat, full sounds that don't have all that annoying fizz. But yeah, this is a great interview, and I'm really excited for you to check it out. So let's just jump right into it. Frederick Nordstrom, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. So for people who might not know your story and your background, can you give us a little bit about that history and how you got started in music and ultimately how you got to where you are now? Yeah, more or less was like when I was six years old, I saw actually Jimi Hendrix on television and I was like blown away. That's what I'm going to do in my life. I'm going to play guitar. Been struggling with that the whole my life. <laughs> and then... Uh, then I came in contact with my first uh, like four-track recorder that we did back in the 80s, cassette tape. Then I just like get really into that to record stuff. So I started building my own home studio more and more and more. And then in the 90s, I uh, bought myself into another studio. And uh, from there, I, it's been yeah doing recordings like the last 30 years for full-time. So it had mainly been oriented around heavy music. And and how did you learn to get into this stuff? Were you just kind of figuring it out on your own? Uh, there was a book, like Recording ABC. I was reading 10 times, I think. And then I worked like 12 hours per day, seven days a week for many years. And like tried out stuff. And when I didn't was recording, I was like in bed thinking about how to solve stuff easier. So it's been a lot of thinking. And I have reinvented the wheel several times, I promise you that. Yeah, I've done it the hard way. And I've I noticed very soon also with my clients, it's like, oh, I'm going to try out a new thing. And they were like, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Do as you used to, used to do. And then I'm like, I, I didn't tell them. And I, my clients have been guinea pigs for a lot of my crazy stuff I've been doing. So... Yeah, I guess it's one of those things where where you've established a name for yourself and you've got quite the catalog of big artists that you've worked with. So people come to you kind of expecting a certain sound. And, and you as an engineer, you're thinking like, well, I've, I'm better than I was on the last project. So, you know, I can experiment, do something a little bit better sounding. So there's got to be that fine balance of, you know, expanding your skills versus... Yeah, but small steps forward all the time. And yeah, but it's like we did the latest Hammerfall album, which is a... For many musicians, a very cheesy band. But to be honest, this band is practicing a lot, and they become so much better musicians like during the last six years. So that actually influenced me to also be better. So oh fuck, you have been better. Then I had to do a better mix than I did last time, and sitting with that, and that's very inspiring when when that stuff happened. And I'm kind of a lucky guy in that matter because. My thing with recording is not gears at all. I, I, I can do a mix within the Brainworks uh, channel strip and use that for, for everything. I don't need a lot of fancy plugins and stuff like that because, as I say, like, it's not the hammer who makes the carpenter. It's the carpenter who holds the hammer. That's, so I'm, I'm, I'm stop that, <laughs> what should I say, competition. The guy who has most gear when he dies win kind of competitions. I stopped that and I've been trying to go so simple as possible when it's possible. I, I love that because so many people tend to go the opposite way. And, you know, as they work on bigger and bigger projects, they buy more and more gear. And like, you know, that becomes 
their their way of thinking that the gear is what really ultimately matters. And I've I've heard you talk about how in the early days, some of your earlier projects, you started off with really inexpensive gear that some people might think these days, like you can't make a great record with that, but you've done it. So obviously it can be done. <laughs> and, you know, and I was wondering now that you have more experience and that you've built a, a f- bigger facility with maybe slightly better gear, maybe not m- a whole lot of gear, but maybe a little bit more upgraded preamps or compressors or whatever, that kind of stuff. I'd love to get your opinion on how much of a difference that stuff really does make. It, it sounds like you don't really think it makes much. Good quality is good quality, for sure. You know, people are sometimes staring themselves blind on like, oh, I need that Neve, blah, 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 preamp to make this great sound. And, you know, it's like I use the Avid Pre's, Avid, you know, and the people say they're shit. I say they're good. <laughs> so, and also it's like when you compare like mic Pre's to each other, it's not a big difference between, you know, okay stuff and really expensive stuff. But it's of, of course it's nice if the gear have weight, <laughs> as, as I say. So it's just not, uh, not like just crap in there. For sure. Well, I guess you know to go to that analogy that you said about the hammer and the carpenter. You know when you when you know what you're doing, you can make any any like stock plug-in or whatever sound amazing because you know how to shape it to get the sound you want. Yeah, but it's it's, it's it takes a lot of experience. It's a this is a craftsmanship that is very hard to learn and which is very fun with it also, it's like you never full learn. You can always go on and go on and you find out new stuff. And Like, for example, the, the Shure SM91, you know, the bass drum microphone. I always put it very, very close to the like the front skin of the bass drum because I've been thinking that then it's, when I use a dynamic mic on the, uh, on the hole, they're very close to each other, so they're going to be very, very in phase, good in phase. And I had a drummer here, and by mistake, the SM91 sneaked away all the way to the front skin. Uh, I mean, hit uh, skin where he had the clubs, and it sounded so much better. And I've been doing this mistake for 20 years, and then I realized I put the microphone for 20 years on the wrong position in the bass drum, <laughs> and just, just laughing and just like. So no, no, I know what to do next time. <laughs> Don't care about the face. I love that. I love that. You know, you're still still learning, and those happy accidents are still, you know, yeah, revolutionary. Yeah. I, call them he- I call them heavy metal accidents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's always it's like one time we, we were sound checking in bass drum. I fuck, this is great. This sounds awesome. This bass drum. And then I looked around and I saw that there was a compressor connected to that channel strip. And that compressor, it was only compressing bass, only the frequency in the bass. Oh, this is wrong. This is for the guitar recording. Let's remove this one. And then we removed the compressor and the bass drum just died. And it was like, ah, oh, we need to have it back. But this heavy metal accidents. It's just like, uh, that's, that's fun. Yeah, it, it's funny to hear it like that, too, because, you know, we tend to get so caught up in our own signal chains of what we know works. So we just gravitate to those things and, and are afraid to experiment sometimes. And, and, you know, hearing those examples there is, is a great reminder that sometimes you do have to kind of do the thing that you feel like you shouldn't be doing to just see what kind of results you get. And you either you either learn from it and start using it or you learn from it and you never touch it again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Well, you've been making records for over 30 years now, so I was curious to get your opinion. You've got a lot of experience. What has made the biggest impact, in your opinion, in the quality of your productions? A good room, actually. For for tracking or for for listening? For both, both, especially listening. Actually, it's like 2000. We built a, like a really good control room with you know good sound isolation, with diffusers and all that stuff uh, constructed by a Swedish guy called Imar Olsson. He had made like Sherio Studios and a lot of these studios. With that, suddenly. We had like the bass was there, and you could control it because if you don't have a proper room, the bass will be in very hard to control. The mid high frequency and mid range is okay, but when coming to bass, it's just like a guessing game if you don't have a good room. So I think that's there's the room is very important, and the speakers, of course. I used to change my Genlac speakers to Neumann. Uh, new speakers I really like, but I'm gonna reconstruct the room after those speakers. 
So, but that was the plan that I should do actually right now. But because of this COVID shit and all the cancellation of recordings, I have to go back to noodles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you say that because, yeah, I think I think there were a lot of people do make the mistake of choosing the wrong monitors for the room that they're in. So if they're in a smaller room and they've got big speakers that are super powerful and really beefy, like having great monitors in a shitty small room isn't going to help you. So you kind of have to find something that matches. Yeah. And also, it's like just every time people start building a studio, I say I just tell them stop straight off and call up an architect that can help you that are specialized on studios. Yeah, but they take like seventy dollars per hour. <laughs> yeah, but you're gonna spend seven thousand dollars on a room that's gonna be totally useless instead of spending like uh, seven hundred dollars on that guy and he help you out and tell you a little bit how to make your room sound good. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Yeah, because if the room is bad, it doesn't matter what speaker you have. They, they will also be bad. So, and I tried out a couple of rooms. <laughs> so that, that's why, I, for me, it's the most important is the room. It's like I was up in another studio uh, and mixing an album. I couldn't get it to sound right. And I took it home and I listened to it. Uh, that was a bad room. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about your studio setup that you have now. Then, what um, what kind of gear are you using? Because it sounds like you have a fairly minimal setup, but but still strong and mighty. So, I have this WinTech uh, seven forty four hundred seventy three model, a full channel, and then I have this super analog SSL. I only have three. I'm searching for the number four. It says have a space here for it. But then I have this Avid Micri eight channels, and uh, the Deesser that I still find very good from the back in the days and this LA22 compressor that's a uh, Vintech compressor and that's a, a very shitty uh, like summing amplifier that I use actually to put my guitar mics on and I had some amps I, I'm, I'm a big fan of guitar amps that's awesome yeah it's, it's interesting to see that because it's not uh, you know you think of these big big productions and big studios and all you can think about is like racks and racks of gear and tons of fancy compressors and stuff and you you really do have a fairly minimal setup it looks like you focus a lot more on the preamps than all of the outboard gear is that because you're are you mixing in the box primarily or are you using any outboard yeah absolutely and like now i'm sitting with five different projects it should be impossible to keep that up going with an analog mixing console or uh, so to be honest i don't think like mixing in the box is maybe the absolutely best. But, um, you know, when you have so many projects going on at the same time, people coming back and forth, and you, I open like three, four albums per day, then this digital total record work in the bo- uh, going 100% in the box is just a game changer for me. Yeah, it's definitely important for your workflow to be able to open up things really quickly. Yeah, so like 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I left the analog gear totally behind me. I moved to a new place. I took the, the stuff I really liked and was, you know, loved, brought it with me and started working digital. And I was spending a lot of time every day, like, to try to, you know, find my sound in these plugins. And, and then after a year, I, uh, I sold all the outboard gear, all the, this fancy like red channel and producer packs and you know lexicon 480s and all, all that i just sold it and i get payment i get money for it also because it was not really dead by the then so that's awesome so I'd, lo- I'd love to talk a little bit about your productions and i'd love to know how involved do you like to get when you're producing an album do you get involved in the songwriting process or do you consider yourself more of like an engineer uh who just focuses on getting the, the tones uh, that's very depending on the band. St- take for example the Haunted. When they have been with me recording, they use me as a as a tool to reach what they searching for. So I'm just a tool for them to help them. And normally they are not interested at all in my input of the music. Uh, but in in other hand, like when I work with other bands, I worked with an Australian band called Logistein. They playing pirate rock really cool guys and there was like there was a before every song we went through all the songs and you know rearrange stuff rewrite stuff and so i'm 
I'm more or less like I, 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 every recording is a new session, and that's also something I try to tell people. It's like we're not going to make you sound like another band. We're going to sound like your your band, but we're going to try to improve it to make it better. So it's very important, I think, for bands to have a unique sound. And I think also it's like, and that's maybe how I made. My thing is just like work really hard and don't listen too much to everybody else what they're saying. Like I was in, into that gear slot forum. Yep. I laughed my asses off and left it <laughs> straight off. <laughs> this is not the place for me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting that you say that because, like, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you have a lot of bands that come to you expecting a specific sound and they want you to do things the way you did it on other albums. So in terms of giving a band the, their own sound versus the sound that maybe they're coming for, how do you strike that balance? Now, I, I normally it's like we, we did that album at the gates slaughter of the soul 94. And that was a, 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 like a teamwork with the band and me. And also in the same time I was in the divorce. So I was, I just, just dropped my whole family life. I just went 100% into the studio. And then a lot of bands came to me. We want to sound like that album. And then I normally, my normal reply was, and still is, join the band. Because the band have a sound, I think so. If they don't have that, then they need to find <laughs> their own sound. And people come in sometimes with uh, reference albums. We like this sound. And then I can ask them, why didn't you go to the guy who did that album then? Because that's what you're looking for. So, and and also, by the way, I don't listen to reference album. I make them. I normally reply. And <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it sounds very cocky, but it's, I, I don't mean that. But I think it's like, you know, find your own thing, do your thing. It's a... Uh, it's very important. I think also like all the great bands, you know, take ABBA, the Beatles, they have a personality. And I have been doing stuff here and it's just like you mixing a band and you can actually take the vocals from that band that they have listening too much to and just drop it into session and it works together because they have been copying so much what uh, <laughs> what that band have done. That's interesting because I have heard you say that you are a big pop music fan and yeah, that you love ABBA and and I love hearing producers that say that they really love a specific genre of music but then they work on the complete opposite and and I was curious to I, I would love to know how you feel your pop music influence impacts the work that you're doing in metal it's like pop music is very straightforward it's like three and a half minutes of uh, of uh, like of of music and that kind of arrangement thing is something absolutely that I've tried to bring two bands uh, normally it's like if song is a fast song is 550 long then i'm like hey guys this is too long i can just tell it by by you see how long the song is you need to make it shorter my idea is of a song when you heard the song then you want to listen to it again if you if you reach that good arrangement then you have succeeded with your arrangement but if you're waiting to the song waiting for the song to end then the song is too long. That's a simple approach to it, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I know it's like for bands, it's like, you know, kill your darlings, all that stuff. It's like, I don't have a personal relationship to your song and this part sucks and this part is too long. So I think we should do like this. And of course, sometimes you step on people's toes uh, and they get upset, but... You know, are you making the music for yourself or are you making the music for the fans? Uh, that normally is like both. Yeah. But do you think your fans should like when this is shorter or and this part is gone? And probably the, the answer is yes. Then leave it out. Yeah, I love that. I, I think that that's a really good point, too, that, you know, a lot of people make music for themselves, but they have to think about ultimately what their long term goals are. And if they want to pursue this as a as a long-term project and have success with it, you do have to consider the fans input as well. And you have to consider the listener and what they want to hear. 
Because, you know, just because you like soloing on your guitar doesn't mean that other people want to listen to 10 minutes of that either, right? So No, and some people like it, but that, that's what also, it's like mainly we are recording albums here. That's what we're doing. We're not recording stuff that's going to be released by a label. And that means my first client is the audience. My second client is the band. And the third client is the record label, even if they pay for the whole recording. But the band have to pay for it eventually anyway. But uh, that's another story. So I, that's that's my that's my have always been my what should I say guiding line. I'm, I'm thinking about the fans. Will the fans like this? Or like we did? I did an Arch Enemy album, and we were like discussing how much gen because they were big in Japan. How much gen will this riff generate? It's <laughs> 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 another way of. Uh, talking about it but it's, it's yeah but it's in the in, in the end it's always if you're releasing music then it's it's the listeners that you're going to please not yourself for sure so then when when a band comes to you with some songs and some demos what's your normal process for production like and and, and like you're listening obviously to see if you enjoy the song all the way through but are you trying to find like areas to cut out right away or like how do you listen to music for the first time when, when a client sends you something? Yeah, because normally what I do is like, I listen to the song one time and then I pick up notes straight off because, and then I come in with my ideas. Normally it's like, it's like the normal failure bands does. It, they're making too long songs. I was in France one time, I worked with a band and for a whole album, I cut out 17 minutes of music for a whole album. <laughs> That's an EP, you know? Wow. Yeah, and when I showed the, the, them my ID, there was a big fight in the band. I remember that. <laughs> I, had to sit, I had to sit by myself in the control room, and after a half an hour, they came in and said, yeah, we go on your line. So we cut it out, 17 minutes of music. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's, that's a lot of music to cut, but it's, it's very yeah, interesting. If you listen to early Metallica, for example, there's two and a half minutes intros of the songs. You can come sneak away with that back in the days, but not now. It's going so fast. It's like these videos they put on Facebook. Wait till the end, and then you see the video six minutes long. I just skip it or go to the <laughs> end straight off. You don't have time to sit there and spend six minutes to see somebody do nothing, and then they fall. If you understand that, what? That's I mean. a great comparison. I love that. It's it's so true because like it's always like a a teaser at the beginning, and then like the real content is at the end. And you know, music is written a lot, a lot of the times like that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it's like also it's like. Sometimes you find like people don't realize it by themselves. They can have a really, really strong hook line in the song, but it's only coming one time. And I'm like, uh, that's a really good hook. You should at least have it two times in the song. Mm -hmm. I also like that you mentioned that you only listen to the song once when, when people send you the demos, because really that's, that's the only chance people get when they send it to their fans. Like People will judge it right away on the first listen. So if you're hearing things right away in that very first listen, then so are the fans as well. So... It gives you a great uh, foundation of you know what things to fix because those are the biggest things. Yeah, but also it's like I think it's like as we were recording on analog tape. Uh, yeah, when I started the studio in the eighty nine ninety, and we did that up until two thousand, and I was like I told you I was working twelve hours per day, seven days a week, and more or less, I have to when you're sitting with the tape recorder, I didn't have any tape operator. I didn't. I did everything by myself. I was putting up mics, doing everything, and also take care of the, the remote control for the tape machine, which means that you have to always you know, be very focused what's happening with the music. You cannot sit there and dream about something and then you do a mistake and then you press under button. It doesn't work like that. You have to be there. So I think I learned up the skill of listening to music just straight off just listen like one time and i get it straight off normally and if i don't get it then i listen again but uh, that makes that makes a lot of sense <laughs> um i did want to ask you a lot of the music that you work on tends to have a lot of fast tempos and fast busy parts like especially with drums like you'll get a lot of double kick action or like you know really quick kick snare hits really back back to back and a problem that i hear with a lot of uh people that work with music with fast tempos is that 
people tend to struggle with getting clarity in their tracks because there just isn't enough space between the notes for them to have that clarity. And I feel like a lot of people tend to add things like low end to make their tracks sound bigger, or they add like reverbs and that kind of stuff. And, and that can really make things sound muddy as well. So what's your technique for getting clarity in tracks that have fast, fast tempos? And are you using like compression to make notes feel shorter? Or like, what's what's your approach there? I've used a lot of compressors. Yes, I do. My idea of heavy metal music is like everyone to be loudest. Everybody wants to be in front. The drummer wants to be the loudest. The bass player wants to be the loudest. The guitarist wants to be the loudest. The vocalist wants to be the loudest. And if they are stupid enough to have a keyboard player, he also wants to be loudest. <laughs> so you need a lot of compression. And, you know, yeah, but you have to be like when you play, you have to be very, you know, it's like with drums now these days with brutals and everything. You just like, you, it's like five day re recording session with drums. And then it's another five days of editing the drums to get them really clear. And then if there are a lot of breakdowns, people start to go away from that now, which is nice. Then you have to also edit up all the guitars and the bass and, you know, line everything up. So everything sounds super tight. But I, I, I can I kind of see like the trend now is going the opposite way. It's like people want to play and don't want to do edits. This is how we sound. And uh, so, like we did Nightrage uh, a couple of months ago, recording drums. Very good drummer, by the way, this Dino guy. And there was just like small touch-ups we did on the drums. And then with the Crown, the same thing. We did they didn't maybe one little part where it was missing a bass drum, and we put it in. But leave the stuff as it is and let people play. And you get a more organic sound that way, I think. But you need to be good good on the instrument. You cannot be shitty. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. Like if 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 you're gonna go for that natural sound, then you have to be a good musician, and everyone has to be on the same level to make it all work. Yes, but in the end, in the end, it makes difference. It does. I did like a, a rock band from Norway, uh, and they were like all into rock it's like more or less this was a good take they didn't listen to it go to the next one recording i did a mistake in the second chorus punch in next song recording and next song next song nobody went back and listened they just recorded it and they nailed an album including mix and mastering in 10 days and the end result was a lot of energy maybe not perfect play there was a lot of energy. Yeah, for sure. Well, so, uh, there's there is some magic to people playing in the same room or just playing together, and you know, there, there's a lot to that. Yeah, it is. But okay, I understand when you're a young musician, you want to be the tightest guy in the in the world. But people don't get, uh, except maybe some other young guys or girls, going to be impressed by that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it takes a lot of practice to get to that point as a musician, right? So you have to, so are, are you doing a lot of pre-production then with bands before they come to you? We do stuff like that. It's normally, it's like they record a demo. I listen to it and, you know, come in with comments. And um, that's normally, it's like, not that we meet up in the studio and record the album first to record it the second time, which may, for me makes no sense. That's very boring. For my own band, for example, we never do pre-production. We do like demos. We demo the song with the click track and here's the song we give it to the drummer play what you want and it's like we are happy what what it does there's also something to be said for bands that have had the experience in the studio or that have maybe worked with you in the past they know the process a little bit better so they're they're kind of preparing a lot better because they know what to expect i actually think that <laughs> for the first album the bands are normally very well prepared they have rehearsed the songs a lot and then when it comes to album four or three, they have been so lazy. So <laughs> they are not prepared at all. They have not written all the songs. So the recording process takes at least double of amount of time to do because they have not been rehearsing and stuff like that. And they pr maybe have been up touring. And Yeah, I was going to say, do you think that that's because of touring? That when a band has established themselves, they, they, are, they are on the road. They don't have years of practice to get super tight with their songs so they they sorted out in the studio but like the like the first inflames album took like 10 days and then second one took 14 days and then third one took uh, three weeks and then it was four weeks and then uh clayman 20 years ago it was six or eight weeks 
eight weeks I think we spent in the studio. But we had upgraded the production a little bit also, of course. So you want more for every recording also. It's like you want to add more. Oh, we want to have like string section here and we want to do this and we want keyboards and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And so you had talked about editing earlier and how that was an important part of keeping things really tight. Do you find that you do edit a lot or are you... Because so like, now there is both of both of those sides where there are the, the people that want everything super tight and hyper edited. And then there's the opposite side that you talked about where people want things more natural. So what kind of productions are you trying to focus on more these days? Do you want those ones that are heavily tight? I'm trying to, to be more organic. And also, especially it's like since all this quantizing came to the as a tool, people was totally insane with that. Everything should be 100% to grid all the time. And I'm trying, like, if I edit drums, I try to do, like, 70% editing and keep 30% as it was, bad or good, uh, to keep some kind of organic vibe in the stuff. Yeah, I, I like that approach, because then you're still tightening it up enough that it's tight, but it still has that natural sound to it as yeah, well. But it, it, yeah, but it's the same with the singers. If they come in here and they scream and then they go do clean vocals and they have not practice, then it's like, are you crazy? Do you think I'm I'm going to a recording studio with a saxophone and saying I'm going to record an album here, okay? And, and then I cannot even use my fucking saxophone, expecting the guy in the studio to fix that for me. It's the same <laughs> thing like with growlers. You just think they're going to manage to do clean vocals in one go? So I have like this thing when we do clean vocals here. I I, I never melodyned vocals. We perform until it's there. And in worst, uh, in worst case, I have to go in and do edit on it. But then I don't really care so much. <laughs> because if you're that bad that you cannot even sing in key with an autotune, then it's just like, then you have to construct the vocals in Melodyne, for example, which is a very boring program, by, by the way. But it's brilliant that it's boring. Yeah. <laughs> so do you do you have any tips then for uh, getting the right performances out of a musician? Like, do you have any tips for how to track it so that you can get tighter performances or more in tune? I, th I think this is, I'm not talking for, for, for how I was in the 90s. Then I was really bad, I heard. But uh, that's also coming with experience. It's like you're sitting and tracking. Sometimes you can get the vibe, like for the drummer, for example. It's like you can go to the talkback mic and say, hey, I know you can do this better. I'm 100% sure. I but keep this take. But are you agree with me? Yeah, I can do it better. Okay, why should we save it if it's a bad take? And, you know, get people... Of course, they need to practice. That's that's the first thing. Uh, but, you know, try to be gentle to people. I think it's a good thing to do. You know, yeah, for but, sure. Yeah. Well, positivity definitely goes a long way. And, you know, if you're like, hey, that, that takes shit. You suck. Like, that's not going to get anybody excited about performing, right? I heard a really good one. There was a drummer who was sitting in the studio recording, and suddenly the engineer took down the talkback mic and said, I get horny when you play drums. And the drum, <laughs> drum, drummer asked me, why? And then the engineer said, because you play like a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that album turned out really good. To be honest, but <laughs> but uh, you know what to say to you guys when you record in the studio. Yeah, <laughs> that, that I've I've never heard that one before. <laughs> no, but, uh, do you do you find that do you find that you end up um, tracking in smaller sections as opposed to letting someone perform the whole thing? Is that your approach? I, I normally ask people how they if they have been recording before. How do do they prefer prefer to record? Yeah, can we do word by word? No, but let's try to do you know a verse, for example. Yeah, of course. I I don't want to sit and record uh, in vain. It's like like the engineer from he recorded Abba. He said like take one, two, and three. If you don't get those takes, then you have lost the best takes. Hmm. Um, yeah. It, do you but think that that's, is that because people are giving their like pure emotion into those first few takes, and then after that they just get exhausted? Can be, yeah. And you start into like thinking about stuff, and you get more and more in, into that, and you get more and more advice from people. Do that, do that. Can you try to do that? And then you people like or my singer in my band. He's like he get instruction from somebody, 
and he sings that terrible. And I said, Niklas, just do your thing. And then he does his thing, and it just sounds great. So, but it is, you know, have fun in the studio. It's, it's not, you cannot just say have fun and force fun, but, you know, try to have fun in the studio for sure. Yeah, it's absolutely. Like, yeah, and like for mixing, don't sit there for eight hours in one go and mix. It's just like when you have a flow, work on it, and when you feel like you're hitting the wall, then leave it and go away and have a coffee or something and then go back again. How long do you find it usually takes you to finish mixes then? I normally, if it is a normal rock band with some keyboards and some effects, normally I estimate one week, but the efficient time that I can sometimes spending can be like half of that because the other half I need to like take a walk around the block, you know, to see a bird and, you know, get away. I was there when I was younger. I was sitting and mixing and mixing and mixing. And I had this, I remember I was doing a band for, for, uh, uh, for one of the major labels and I did a demo for them first and they were really happy about it. And then we're going to record a second demo and the guys from the record label should come to the studio. And I was just sitting mixing and mixing and realized I haven't eaten for two days. Yeah, but I'm, I was like so stressed out and I've been spending like two weeks mixing, was never satisfied. Uh, and this happened so many times, like especially for mixing because it's kind of ending of the whole session. And it's so easy to like, I know friends of mine, they're sitting 12 hours and then they're coming back the day after and they're like, what the fuck have I done here? It's better to take it in small chunks. Yeah. So do you find, it, you said it takes you a week to finish a song for mixing or like a, no, an, an album? album an, an album. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it is really important to take the breaks because you get so focused on it and you've listened to the same song a thousand times in a row. Of course, you're going to lose the big picture after a while. Yes, which is very easy to do. It's, that's why I'm, I'm trying like, like we had a big studio back in the days, like we had a, like a 330 square meter big studio with a massive recording room. And a lot of mixing was like two hours mixing. And then we went out in the live room and playing table tennis, like for a half an hour. Back in again, mixing. And then, oh, no, back, you have to do some table tennis, which is, uh, can seem to be a waste of time. But, but for me anyway, has been like, very efficient and especially if i do a mix i can sit here and i feel like i'm done i don't know more what to do and i leave it i go home i'm coming back in the morning and press play and take me two seconds and i hear directly i can do better and then i just sorting out in 10 minutes yeah or should take me hours the day before to sort out because I I had a, yeah i love that you said like you know playing table tennis and doing stuff like that, where it's like, it forces your brain to think completely opposite of the mixing world and clears your head so that you can come back and be, and be focused on a new, on a new task at, at you know, yeah, fix yeah, but the same is actually with songwriting. If you're sitting there and like try to force something out of, of yourself, you're not going to make a good song from that, I think. But if it just like flows out from you in that moment, take care of the moment and, you know, and suddenly you have a good song for sure. And um, do you do you find that you follow like a specific workflow whenever you mix? Like do you do you always do things in a specific order? Oh yeah, yeah. there I'm very very uh, picky. Actually, I always start with the drums for a metal album. You know, no no good drums, no good metal album kind of. So it's very important to make a good drum sound as good as possible. And then I go for bass, then I go for guitar, and then I go for vocals, and then like the rest of the stuff, you know, if they're keyboards and effects and stuff like that. And that normally ends up that I'm, you know, when I'm ending up with the vocals, then I go back to the drums again and go like that, round and round uh, and listen. That makes sense. You're kind of building everything on top of the previous yeah, instrument. Yeah, and I start mixing on an extremely loud volume of some reason. That's also why I maybe need to take <laughs> those breaks and go home and sleep. <laughs> and ending up on really low volume. Yeah. And I'm assuming all of the editing and that kind of stuff, that's all done before you get into the mixing stage? Yeah. If I'm going to mix an album, I'm going to mix it. I'm not going to sit there and tune vocals. That should be done before. Uh, so I always do like that when I'm recording stuff. We make sure, okay, now it's ready for mix. Now, the only thing you're going to concentrate on is the mix. If you hear something bad, you can fix it. But 
that should be done before. Yeah, it makes sense. You, you don't want to get out of the uh, the focus of mixing, right? Like you have no, a vision no. for where you want to go. And the last thing you want to do is get distracted by editing or, you know, tuning vocals. Yeah, I'm sitting with the product now. It's a guy and yeah, oh, everything. So it's a good songs, but he's not the recording engineer and he's sending me stuff. And suddenly I don't realize it, but I hear something's weird, but the drums is one bar too late, for example, or one bar too early because he consolidated the tracks with different starting points. And, and he's, oh, I don't understand how that happened. And, you know, I'm sitting here and tear my hair off and get really frustrated. What, what is wrong here? I don't know. I, I, I didn't create the song. Oh, he uploaded no, new files again. And he did everything. He sent me eight bit files. <laughs> Do you know how that sounds? Like shit. <laughs> like shit. And also he managed to, I don't know what's happened here, he said. I don't know what's happened here. And he exported 64-bit files. So I tried to import it in Prutus, and Prutus just stopped. For two days I was trying, what the fuck is going on? And I, I checked the audio file. 64-bit? Is that possible? <laughs> so I have, to, I have to use my friend's PC with Reaper to convert them so I can open them in Pro Tools. Yeah. <laughs> so you did talk about how you do follow that order of drums, bass, guitar, vocals, and keyboards, whatever. And then you kind of revisit that entire cycle. So at what point do you know your mix is done? Like, how do you know? Is there is there something? You're never done. But sometimes you can have a, 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 like a good feeling that is like, the vision of you had like uh, an open, transparent sound. I that's I can't be a little frustrated because some people can come to me and say, "Oh, it's so good with your mixes because everything is so clear." My vision is to make the band sounds like one unit. So I'm trying to get, if you understand what I mean, drums, bass, guitars, and vocals to be like one big turd. That's my <laughs> vision. So <laughs> hopefully not a turd. Say, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I want. To, them to sound like one unit, if you mm. understand what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to people to be separated too much. I want the bass to blend in with the guitars and the drums. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And once you once you feel like everything's working, then there shouldn't be anything more to fix. You're just probably nitpicking at that point. Yeah, but I, I did a mix uh, last week with a band from Stockholm, and I felt like ah, uh, they were really happy. They were really happy, but I was like ah, oh, no, no, I have to go back and look into it and. Then I went back and looked into it, and I realized that it was just a shitty day when I listened to the stuff. It sounded pretty good, actually. So <laughs> there was no point of, of changing anything. I didn't know what to change. It kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier, about the musicians who are writing music for themselves versus the, the audience, right? Like, as engineers, we kind of do the same thing. We kind of want to just keep improving and improving and, like, you know, flexing our engineer muscles. But often... At the end of the day, it's the, the band or the fans that matter, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that, that can be actually be a, like a question I put out: will, st will will this change of lifting the guitar solo zero point zero one dB up? Will that make is, is that game changer? Will that make you with contract or no contract? No, it doesn't matter. It, it's just like a good song. It's a good song. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's a, a good comparison for sure. Is there anything that you like to do with your mixes that other people, if they were to watch you in the studio, would think like, "That's crazy! What's he doing?" Like, no, no, I'm uh, like, like I'm now these days. I'm always try to like do audio mastering in the mix session. So I have, because then you have like I have like a chain of of tools that I have heavy the mastering. I I add that, and uh, so I know what I get. So the CD mastering I do is just like uh, administration work. You just like cut the songs, do a fade out here, and you know that stuff. I don't in the mastering program. I do normally nothing with the sound. I, and it's also very good when you see the mixing, and you think you have all levels right, and then you add this mastering chain that are zeroed, of course, from the beginning, and then you start tweaking on it, and then suddenly you hear fuck the guitars is so loud. Then you can do that straight off take down the guitars and it's done instead of going back to the session and all that stuff and recently also we tried to have like if you do an album try to have the whole album in one session it's a very convenient way of doing stuff like when you record an album one session you open the session one time when the band is leaving after four months and four weeks then you're closing the session is that because do you do you use the same 
tones typically throughout the entire album? Yes, that's what you normally do. And if you record drums, you normally don't go in there and change uh, uh, like drum skins in the middle of a, of a song. You might do something like put an extra snare skin on the snare drum to get the 80s snare sound. But you see, you get a good like overview of, of the album also. You can see directly, it's like, oh, this guitar is too low recorded. And, and it's very convenient, actually. It's just when you're recording and mixing and have everything in one session. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense for sure when it when it's an album that has similar tones. I guess, it, have you run into experiences where I guess if you change the tone of a, a guitar on one song versus another, I guess that's just a matter of changing your automation and, and your settings overall, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I remixed um, Hammerfall's uh, Renegade album. It's like a 20 years anniversary. And I noticed when I was mixing that they have done different guitar tones on every different track which was annoying. But then you have this pre-EQ thing in Pro Tools, so I had to go use the sound I thought sounded best and jump back and forth and try to EQ those guitar tones so they were matching up each other. Yeah, but no, but this work with the whole album in one session is a very convenient way of doing it. It can be a lot of tracks. It can be a lot of tracks, but actually... For sure. But that's an interesting point that you brought up about trying to match the guitar tones, because... That is something that people do need to consider is like if you are going to change your guitar tone from song to song, you still need like a coherency between the, every song on the album. You you need something, you know, maybe you have to carve out a little bit of one frequency on one track versus another to make things work better together. Right. Yeah. But also it's like you can like uh, we did on some albums. It's like we use two different amplifiers for the fast songs and two other amplifiers for for the slower songs. And um then you just like normally put them on different tracks. And also for me, it's like I'm, I'm normally using two power amplifier and one pre-amplifier and two 4x12 speakers for the guitar tone. So I actually have four microphones up running on, on the guitar cab. And those I recorded to one track. I don't want to have four different tracks that I had an option later on that I can, you know, change the balance between these four tracks. I, I, I do that straight off. I, is it good? Yes, it's good. Keep it. If it's not good, redo. Yeah, I love that approach. Like you, you should commit, right? Like if you're if you're working with a specific tone, you already got you're getting an energy from that tone. So everyone's kind of playing to that, I think. Yeah, okay, I'm recording line signals also in case of, but that's not to be able to reamp the guitar. Is sometimes in the studio I have bands from wherever in the world, and it's Saturday night and a piss drunk coming in and somebody sleeping in the recording room and he fell over the mics. And then they keep up recording guitars, let's say on Sunday, and they are like, Freddy, there's something weird with the guitar tone. And then you find all the mics on the floor because the singer was pissed drunk at <laughs> two o'clock in the night. Then I can go back and use the line signal they have recorded and reamp the guitar so we can keep the same sound. Yeah, that's a great point. It's a great safety net just to make sure that you, yes. you know nothing messes Instead up. Instead of wasting whole set, uh, Sunday recording uh, on, uh, and we have to re redo everything. So... It can be nice to have uh, like the line scene also because it's very attacky, so you can see very well where people hit. If you need to sort something out with the guitar playing, maybe they were not enough rehearsed, so they are sloppy. Then you can go in and push them a little bit, and you see it very clear with the line signal. Yeah, it's much easier for editing when you have that line signal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you had mentioned that you typically use four mics on your guitar recordings. Yes, and, and I, I feel like. I'd, I'd be doing my audience a disservice to not talk to you about the Fredman technique because that's what you're you're really well known for that technique. And I was wondering if you can if I could get you to explain it in your own words, like what that technique is and how you use it in your guitar tracks. It's simply actually two fifty short SM fifty seven mics. This is like we did a first test we did on Slaughter of the Soul ninety four. So this is back in the days, and we put up all mics I had in the studio on this guitar cabinet. And we were for two days sitting and listening to the guitar tone. This technique is, I didn't invent that, but it's been called after me because I use it so much. And it's, it's more or less, it's a 57 that you point straight into the cone. So it's actually, this is bad or wrong recording-wise, because you shouldn't put, put the microphone like 90 degrees into the source. So, and then I have another microphone in 55 degrees angle approximately uh, on the side. And these two together, it's like you get a very fussy, and you get a very boomy signal. But when you blend them together, you get a very present guitar tone. 
and it more or less, to be honest, sounds like how it sounds out, out with the with the cabinet. I've been trying and mix in other mics also uh, with bad or good results. And this this tryout with the microphones I did again a couple of years later because guitar tones have always been a problem. You know, what mic should you use? And this mic is the best. And uh, like this lawyer band microphones, people say are great on guitar. I find them super dull and I don't like them at all. But that's my thing. So are you saying you've tried this this shootout using that technique, but with different microphones? Uh, not with that technique. With the, uh, I tried the 58s and stuff like that, but similar microphone. But uh, yeah, but for some reason, I can have a Shure 57 on everything except snare drum, because I don't think they'll sound good on snare drum. What's your, your microphone of choice for snare drum? Oh, it's a, this is also, it's a, it's a, a Sanken, you know, that's a Japanese brand. Yes, yes, I've heard of them. Yep. Uh, CU31. It's a very expensive microphone. Uh, but it sounds really good on snare drum. Yeah, but I know most people first choice for snare drum is an SM57. Yeah, well, it's, it's just such a versatile microphone. And the fact that, you know, you, you're getting amazing guitar tones with a 57, which most people can like there's you can't really mess it up i guess yeah but one thing also is like uh, you know all this rock and roll talk talk about you should crank the amplifier to 11 and stuff like that for metal sound i find that very messy i'm normally like oh, oh, if i have a hundred watt amplifier i go maybe on one on the volume i don't play loud at all so everything keeps together like you don't crank the speakers and stop vibrating and dancing around in the studio and uh so it's just like, I have a quite low volume, actually. This is also, because that, there's a lot of headrooms, and especially now these days when people are tuning down to, I don't know what, P. <coughs> uh, and it's very low tuned, and, and when you play like boom, 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 you know, everything starts to vibrate. And take a normal Marshall cab. They are very thin. So if you crank them too much, it's, it just doesn't sound good. Maybe for an ACDC record. <laughs> but not, not for the high gain stuff we are doing here yeah so do you find that you are using a lot of like high gain because because that's something i hear a lot with metal music that people always say you should dial down the gain and not have as much then you have to compensate with the right hand which i think it's cool but when people have too little gain i call that adult amount of gain uh, <laughs> so but no but too much gain, everything get muddy. And too little gain, it's get too polished and too grown up. You know, decent balance. Yeah. And what's interesting about that mic technique, too, is that you kind of get the best of both worlds in the sense that you can... The high gain stuff tends to have a little bit more fizz. So if you want more of that fizzy kind of sound, you can use that direct microphone and get a little bit more of that. Because that is the technique, right? You can blend the, you can blend the two microphones. Yeah, you blend it with the faders. If you want to, like, a more darker sound, you go for, for, the, for the one that's angle 55 degrees. And for the one where you want a fussier sound, you go for, for one in, in, in the middle, yes. Yeah, and that angle is super important, 55 degrees, right? Because you, you see a lot of people online say 45, but I've, I, I've no, heard... No, 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 okay. no. I, I get my hands on this Wilkinson audio thing, and I was straight off, I put it up, and was like, no, this is not right. That's why I actually made my own clip. Yeah, so, so you do sell clips that are made specifically for this technique. Yes. So I'm, uh, we are on our way, we're going to... I think we're going to be, uh, I'm working with a Swedish uh, uh, company uh, uh, right now, and we are working and see if we can manage to build a high-end class A microphone preamplifier with tubes and an optical compressor in LA2 style for a recent amount of money. It's not like three, four $4,000. That'd be amazing. Yeah, so try to get something, you know, not too many futures and stuff like that. You know, it's very straight on, you know, good sound quality in to your door or whatever you're going to record on. So, but I think that like the tube, I, I'm a tube guy. I liked tubes. That was the hard thing for me to sell was like my tube tech stuff. <laughs> yeah, there's something something to tubes that definitely sounds nice and warm. Yeah, I, I, somebody explained, for, explained that to me like an engineer guy, he's telling like how the distortion are in tubes, they are in third generation of the overtone. Yep. But when you go, you go in, in a solid state, they are in, in second generation of overtone. So it's a different kind of distortion. Mm -hmm. It's a little higher up. Yes. But also it's like, 
like all this, you know, these uh, maximizers and, you know, exciters and stuff like that, they make the sound clear by adding distortion, which sounds so weird. But actually, that's what they're doing. They're adding distortion to make stuff more clear. I don't know how it works. It's the human ear. But, uh, well, the ear perceives it. You hear it more when there's like those third harmonics, which are a little higher up in the frequency range. Like the, your ears are a little bit more sensitive to that, I guess. So yeah, yeah. But we tried out the microphone, and it was exactly the same microphone. And one was driven by tubes, and one was driven by this FET technology, the discrete class A, whatever you call it. And it sounds different with 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 the tubes in. And so what I is what I'm saying is like this felt like it was more clear. But it's just the electronics was different, but the capsule was exactly the same. So yeah, that's interesting. I'm really excited to hear that once you once you get it developed. I was gonna say you should add like a summing mixer to it, so that way you can use the, the Fredman technique. That, that, that's the plan. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. So I have a lot of ideas. It's, it's going back to analog stuff. I'm starting a company called Fredman Digital, and now we're going analog instead. But <laughs> it's just like <laughs> yeah, but it's try to you know fun stuff. It's like the Fredma clip. It was a fun thing. I mean, we spent it like $500 on it on a printer that can print in two colors, which didn't work. And I was like, okay, but if we can get money back enough so we can pay for the printer, I'm happy. And I'm overwhelmed. It's like we sold, I think we sold a thousand copies of that clip already, which it was like, it's not a high profit thing, but it's just, it's just the fact that it's fun. It's, it's just like, wow, we sold one more. Yes. It's just like, I don't care so much about money, but I care about, you know, have fun. And that's one of the p thing we're doing now is that is fun. You're making people's lives easier by giving them a clip that has the right angle. And, you know, there's no, no guesswork. So that, that definitely speeds things up. Yeah, but I, I, I was expecting that we should sell, sell five. <laughs> that was my, what I thought. We're going to sell five, ten maybe. And then... Uh, yeah, that guy, Glenn Fricker, you know him? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he reviewed the clip, and I was sitting eating dinner, and my telephone was, like, shaking. What the fuck's going on? <laughs> <laughs> like this. And I was like, oh, holy, holy moly, what's happened here? And then we saw the video of him. And he's a very cool guy, by the way. I love his videos, and he's, like, screaming on everybody in the band, especially the bass player. And I'm, I'm thinking, who dares to go to that guy and record? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I I use his videos on my website. Don't fuck it up when you're exporting tracks to send it to the studio. And he's explained it uh, like very well for people. But uh, it's like people get scared sometimes. Oh, he's a very <laughs> angry man. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, sometimes you got to be brutally honest. And then, you know, sometimes you have to be a little bit more on the nice side. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a time and place for both. <laughs> yeah. No, but I love his stuff with his doing. He's, yeah, but he's, like you say, honest. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, I don't want to take up too much of your time because I know you got a busy day. And, uh, but I just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I think you gave us a lot of really good insight into what goes into your productions and uh, definitely a lot of good stuff to take away from here. A lot of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was all great, man. Well, well, thank you again. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Oh, no, my, my pleasure. So that was my conversation with Frederick Nordstrom, and that was a great conversation. I really like that he brought up some important points about just taking your time when working on projects and taking breaks when you're mixing or spending a little bit more time to get the right performances and just do it right. I think that that's definitely a major part in why his recording sounds so great, why his mixes sound so good. And, you know, it's something that we all need to keep in mind, because if we're just constantly rushing through projects, it's going to eventually affect the work and kind of degrade the quality that we get. So... It's really important to take breaks and I like that he that he touched up on that and it was really cool to also hear some insights into what goes into some of his projects and how he thinks about production and, and trimming the fat in some songs and how he really focuses on who you're making the music for. I like how we broke it down into the three categories and you know the listener, the band and the label. I thought that was a, a really good way to put it. So hopefully you enjoyed that interview, and if you did, and this is your first time listening to the Master Mix podcast, make sure to subscribe to this podcast, that way you get notified about all new podcast episodes as they come up. 
I've definitely got a couple of really good interviews uh, in the works, trying to arrange some scheduling, and we got some pretty cool big guests coming up. So I'm really excited for that. So make sure to subscribe. And if you haven't already, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That's a site where every week I put out new tutorials, tips and tricks, and podcast episodes, and a whole bunch more dedicated to helping musicians create pro recordings from their home studios so that you can showcase your talents in the best way possible. So once again, visit MasterYourMix.com. And on the website, I'm giving away my ultimate mixing blueprint, which is a guide to using EQ and compression in your mixes to help you get results faster. So that's a free download. All you got to do is visit MasterYourMix.com and you can download it for free. So that's it for today's episode, guys. Hope you enjoyed that and look forward to talking to you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.